Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and resulting in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 4. This is the text from which our sermon will come today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. I'll read it for our hearing this morning. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you don't have a copy in front of you, I, just, I invite you to follow along there. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's Word. Back in 2022, just a couple of years ago, when I was in South Africa on a latitude excursion, um, I had a chance to visit with one of the partner churches, one of the pastors there uh, that latitude partners with. Uh, and we spoke about the opportunity to send mission teams to serve in their context. And this church has, listen, quite a few American church partners that send funds and teams overseas on an annual basis. And so they're constantly receiving teams to serve in ministries throughout their community. Now these ministries, these teams are going over to serve in would exist without these teams, right? They're already up and operational. But these teams go to serve in those contexts really for two big broad reasons. First, because oftentimes they're financially partnering with that ministry and so they go to see where their kingdom dollars are being invested and how they're making an impact in that local context. But second, they go to get a cross-cultural missions experience. Right, to serve in a different country, to serve in a different culture, to serve in a different context than what they're accustomed to. Because oftentimes when we get out of our culture, we get out of our context, and we get out of our country, right, our worldview expands as we see what God is doing globally. So those are two broad reasons, and each of those is an important reason, a vital reason. Now that pastor told me something about those teams when they go home. He said that the leaders of those American partner churches will tell him that they are sending over good members of their churches, but they are receiving back better members in their churches. Better members in their churches because they're receiving back members with passion for their own community. As they see what God is doing elsewhere, they imagine what God might do here or there, wherever God has planted them. Right, they have ideas about ways they could serve their own uh, community with passion for reaching the lost, caring for those in need, serving in their church and reaching their community. To all that we would say, praise God. That God does that work in them whenever they go to a different place and see how God is working elsewhere. However, I've been a part of some of these types of teams in the past. I imagine some of you may have been as well. And I've seen the excitement on people's faces whenever they return 
and all the ideas that are stirring and the passion that's being generated. But sometimes upon their return, that may fade as they settle back into the everyday realities of their lives. And those patterns that they had left behind whenever they traveled overseas. And so you ask the question, well, what happened? See, they had this great experience in this cross-cultural context, but they never changed their habits whenever they came back home. See, I will say this, our habits, you've heard me say it before, and I'll say it again, our habits shape us more than those service projects that we might do on a weekend or even those big mission experiences. Now, don't get me wrong, those things are wonderful, beautiful things, and there are people across our community who need a weekend service project, and there are places and peoples who need to hear the name of Jesus in different countries, different cultures, and different contexts. But if those experiences are like one and done, like one-off types of experiences, then there's been no real lasting change in our lives. Because what fuels lasting change are our habits. The things that we do day to day and week to week and month to month, that's what shapes our hearts and forms our lives. And if we are to be formed, listen church, into the image of Christ who is in Isaiah called the suffering servant and be formed into the image of the one that uh, Charles just mentioned who came not to be served but to serve in the gospels, then listen, we must learn daily to do this one thing, to choose service over self. To choose service over self. Because every time we choose service over self, it shapes our hearts in small but noticeable ways. But the reverse is true as well. Every time we choose self over service, it shapes our hearts in small but noticeable ways. When we choose service over self, we're slowly, progressively being what theologians call sanctified, formed into the image of Christ, the image of Jesus himself. I'll reference back to the same verse Charles read when he led us in prayer. In Mark 10, 45, we read the words of Jesus as he says to his disciples, those who are learning to be like him and do the things that he did, right? He says to them, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And a few things stood out to me as I reflected on the, that verse this week. First, the name the Son of Man. This is the name that first shows up in Daniel chapter 7. As Daniel has this grand vision, and he sees one whom he describes to be like a Son of Man, like a human being who is approaching what he calls the Ancient of Days in this vision. God, the Lord, Yahweh, seated upon his throne. So one like a son of man, like a human being, approaching Yahweh, God himself. And as he approaches him, the text reads in Daniel 7, that this one like a son of man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Now listen, when Jesus adopts the name the Son of Man for himself in the gospel accounts, he's drawing on the language of Daniel 7. So for those who knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, like every Jewish person in Jesus' day, when he says the Son of Man the thing that automatically comes to their mind 
and they understood exactly what he was saying, that he was saying, I am the one to whom dominion and glory and a kingdom has been given by God the Father. I am the one whom all peoples, nations, and languages should serve. I am the one who has dominion that is everlasting and shall not pass away. And I am the one who is, has a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That's what he's saying about himself. And yet in the Gospels, this is mind-blowing. Listen to what he says. He says, the one that should be served by all peoples and nations and languages is the one who came to serve all peoples, nations, and languages. For even, even the Son of Man, the one who has all authority and should be served by all peoples, even he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, every time we choose service over self, we're being shaped into the image of our Savior. Every time. Let me see if I can press this a little bit further. In January of 2017, an episode of BBC's TV series based on the character of Sherlock Holmes aired. Now in that episode, there was an exchange between Sherlock and his beloved friend, Watson. So they have this conversation, and the conversation revolves around the discussion of Mary, who was Watson's wife, her death. Because what had happened was, someone fired a bullet at Sherlock, and Mary jumps in the way and receives the wound that was intended to kill Sherlock. She dies on the spot but before she dies, she professes her love for Watson, her beloved husband, and his best friend, Sherlock. Now, the conversation in this episode between Watson and Sherlock went like this as they discussed Mary's death. Watson says to Sherlock, you didn't kill Mary. Mary died saving your life. It's her choice. No one made her do it. No one could ever make her do anything, he says. But the point is, you did not kill her. To which Sherlock replies, someone took a bullet for me, meant for me, and I'm trying to determine how to respond. In saving my life, she conferred a value on it. It is a currency I do not yet know how to spend. Now listen, church. In serving you by giving his life to save you as a ransom, to buy you back from condemnation. Jesus has conferred a value on your life. And he calls you to spend that currency. And one way he calls you to spend it is in the service of others. By choosing service over self. And as you do that, you're conformed, you're molded, you're made into the image of Jesus himself. A servant of all peoples, nations, and languages. See, every time we choose service over self, every time we show up on a Sunday morning to change diapers in the nursery, right, and give bottles, even though we had a long week and we're exhausted and all we want to do is sleep in. 
Every time we show up to change diapers in the nursery, you know what we're doing? We're spending the currency of salvation. Every time we show up at the home of a friend in need, even though our favorite team is playing on our 75-inch 4K flat screen, as if we don't have a DVR, we're spending the currency of salvation. Every time we take time out of our schedule to meet with a coworker who needs encouragement, every time we prepare a lesson to deposit truth into the lives of little minds and little hearts in our children's ministry. We're spending the currency of salvation. Every time we break off a conversation with a group of close friends to walk across the room because we see someone new has walked in and we want to make sure they feel loved, included, and received, and practice hospitality, we're spending the currency of salvation. Every time we show up early to set up the stage and musical equipment to rehearse and turn knobs and advance slides to facilitate the church in worship, we're spending the currency of salvation. Every time, listen, students, you fold the laundry of someone in your home, right, the clothes that you didn't wear that week, You're serving others in small ways that shapes and forms your heart. And you know what you're doing? You're spending the currency of salvation as you serve those who are around you. As we choose service over self. You're like, what in the world does that have to do with 1 Peter 4? (laughs) We're we're there now. I want to put some hands and feet onto this for us this morning. In first, from First Peter, because you see, most often, whenever we choose service over self and choose to serve those around us, oftentimes, it's in accordance with the ways that God has gifted us. And in this passage in First Peter, listen, Peter tells us something that's very simple and yet very profound. He says this, that we are all stewards. We are all stewards. Notice what he says at the end of verse 10 of the text we read this morning. He says, we're, we're stewards, and a steward, listen, is, is essentially this, is a household servant, someone with specific tasks that have been delegated to them. They have responsibilities to carry out. And Peter doesn't say in verse 10, as some have received a gift, as if there's a select group that God has gifted, but rather he says, as each has received a gift, which means everyone in the church is gifted and everyone is a steward of that gift, a manager of that gift, is responsible for that gift, has tasks associated with that gift. Now, if we've received this a gift from God, it means at least two things. First of all, we will be accountable for that gift. Peter says we ought to be good stewards. We're all stewards. We're either bad stewards or we're good stewards. Right, And we will have to give an account to God for how we stewarded the gift that he gave us, used it for the things that he desired for us to use it for, and we will have to give an answer for the way that we managed it. But second of all, not only are we accountable for it, but it also means we cannot be arrogant on account of it. Listen, if you received a gift, you didn't conceive the gift. It doesn't belong to you. It comes from God. Which means, 
that you cannot use the gift to elevate yourself to some higher platform than everyone else around you because that gift didn't originate with you. It has come from God himself. You can't use it to exalt yourself over others and think that you're more important because you're gifted in a certain way or in a certain capacity. Now, in verse 11, Peter indicates there's two broad types of gifts God's given to his church. He says there's gifts of speech and there are gifts of service. Gifts of speech like preaching and teaching, words of encouragement, counseling, even writing. Or gifts of service like hospitality or mercy, leadership, administration, the gift of helps. See, there are several texts in the New Testament that speak of these lists of gifts. None of them are exhaustive. All they're, they're giving examples of the ways in which God may have gifted individuals in his church. So some may be gifted, listen, even outside of that, those lists in the New Testament. They may be gifted writers or photographers. They may be gifted artists or accountants. They may be gifted media specialists or musicians, or gifted manual labor, laborers. Had to add the E-R on the end of that along with the S. Gifted bakers and barbecuers. I really like those people. (laughs) And each of those gifts can be used to serve the Lord by serving others. Choosing service over self. So how has God gifted you? Do you know? Listen, you can take a spiritual gifts inventory or assessment, right? They're great online tools. But don't stop there. That's the starting place, okay? Because listen, if you want to have a gift, you can take enough of those and know exactly what question is going to lead to what outcome, and you can answer those questions however you want to get whatever gift you want. Right, so you can start there. It might give you a, a starting place, but listen, move on from there to affirmations. The recognition of other people around you. Whenever you step into a sphere and other people say, hey, you did a really good job at that. Or you excelled there. Are you gifted in that area? Right, where are other people affirming you in your service So assessments, affirmations, and then third, affections. In other words, what stirs your heart causes your blood to boil a little bit. Like you have the gift of mercy. When people talk about caring for the poor, serving widows, adopting orphans, or helping unwed mothers, it stirs something in you if you have the gift of mercy. Or administration, when people talk about how to best manage people and resources in an organization, it stirs something in you. Praise God. There are people like that. <laughs> and I'm not one of them. Leadership, when people talk about how to strategically address issues, it stirs something in you. Preaching and teaching, when people talk about or, or, or inquire into the particulars of Scripture, you're stirred. Giving, when people talk about new initiatives that's going to require dollars, all of a sudden something gets boiling within you. Or service and helps, when people talk about tangible needs. They or someone they know are in. It stirs something in you. So you can take all the assessments that you want, but where are the affirmations coming from as you lean into those areas of service? And what is it that your affections rise and boil over? 
So indications of areas you might be gifted in. That's not all Peter says. Listen, some of us may say, listen, I understand everyone's got a gift, right? Everyone's got a gift. There are other people out there with a gift that I have, and maybe they can do the work. Maybe they can serve others. Let me just speak to that for a moment. Because some of us may say, listen, you don't understand how busy I am or the season of life that I'm in, the responsibilities at work, or how crazy things are with my crazy family or what my past looks like. Listen, if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me, hey, man, how's it going? And I responded with, I'm so busy. We'd have enough money to pay off the land. (laughs) And if I had a dollar for every time I asked someone else, hey, how's it going? And they said, man, I'm swamped. I am so busy. We have enough money to build a building. So we're all busy. So let me speak to this for a second. Notice what Peter says at the end of verse 10. He says we're stewards of God's varied grace. Now the Greek word under our English word varied, it literally means this, many colored. And it comes from secular terminology that refers to various colors of precious stones or natural rock formations. Listen, if you go to Home Depot or Lowe's this afternoon looking for new countertops and they have all the samples of the granite out there that you can choose from, mined in all the places around the globe, or you go to the little countertop store with the big slabs of granite, there is not a single slab of granite that you can choose for your countertops to update your home and get a refresh that looks exactly the same. Each one has different veins that run through it, or splotches of color in different places, different depths of field, different vibe, different colors even, right? From white to black to red to, to, I don't know, peach, gray, all these different colors that run through it. They're each unique. So you know what Peter's saying? He's saying the gift that you have is unique. It's unique. So even someone else, if you have the gift of teaching, someone else with the same gift of teaching, you may not, they may not be able to minister to the same people that you can because your gift of teaching is unique to you. Someone else who has the gift of leadership, right? They can lead. Well, your gift of leadership may be able to move people in a direction that someone else's can't because your gifting is unique just as their gifting is unique there's no two preachers teachers leaders servants or administrators who are exactly alike listen in God's economy there are no pointless gift exchanges there's no dirty Santa white elephant whatever you called it God doesn't go in the garage or in the closet and go man what can I give that person (laughs) that's not how this works you're uniquely gifted for the service that God has for you so how do we steward these gifts what do we learn about the gifts that God has given listen Peter's not done and so we're not either 
He says, listen, you've got to, with this gift that God has given that you're stewarding, unique gift that God has given you, you must use it to serve for the good of others and to the glory of God. In verse 10, we're told that we've received a gift from God to use it in service to one another. If you're a Christian, let me just say this this morning. If you're a Christian, the reason you are here in this church is not because you have friends or family here. It's not only because you have friends or family here or to listen to uplifting music or hear some mediocre preaching. But if you're a Christian, the reason you're here is because God has placed you here. And he's gifted you for the good of those who are around you. For their good. So we use the gifts that God has given us to serve the people who are around us. We haven't been gifted by God for our own good, but for theirs. So your speaking and your service is for the good of others. Listen, what part of what that means is that if I turn the mirror on myself, I should aspire to develop the gift God's given me to preach and teach the Bible. But not in order to gain prominence or popularity, or a broader platform, or invitations to speaking engagements, but rather I should aspire to grow in that gifting to better serve you, because it's for your good. And the same is true of your gifts. You ought to aspire to grow in them in order to better serve others. But second, you serve to the glory of God. In verse 11, we're told that we received a gift from God to use it for His glory. Peter says, in order that in everything He may receive the glory. The everything Peter refers to is all our speaking and all our serving. So as we speak and as we serve, we should be aiming at God's glory. That means God has gifted you not to make your name famous, but His And so as we exercise the gifts, we're pointing away from ourselves. If we're exercising them rightly, we're pointing away from ourselves to the one who has given it because the one who has given the gift deserves the glory. Let me just speak for a moment to why this matters so much. Listen, it's usually not long before a discussion about gifts and serving others. It, It often turns inward and we start talking about how personally fulfilling it is and how much joy it brings us and how much we get out of it now all these things are true and they're not wrong because when we use the gifts that God has given us in the service of others listen it's incredibly fulfilling it is deeply satisfying brings great joy and yet that's not what Peter talks about in the text and here's why this is important listen because if the motive of personal fulfillment is the only thing that's driving us then that motive will never be solid enough to endure the moment our speaking or serving is no longer fulfilling because those days will come when we don't receive affirmation from those we're speaking to when we don't get feedback from those that we're serving to encourage us if that's what we're using the gift for We're going to find that to be, and that's all we're using the gift for, we're going to find it to be hollow. It's not going to be substantial enough to carry us forward if we're not aiming at the good of others and the glory of God. So how do we use the gifts God has given us for the good of others and the glory of God? Listen, I've got two things for you. 
First, if you have gifts of speech, then you must learn to say what God has said. See, in verse 11, Peter says that those who speak must do so as if they're speaking the very words of God. Those with speaking gifts, listen, they must take their, res- their, their task res- seriously and their responsibilities to speak consistent with the revealed word of God. And anyone, listen, who's ever stood before a people and opened the book and said, this is what God says, they ought to feel a weight and a responsibility to that, to say what God has said, because there's no license just to wing it and make it up as you go. Listen to what Martin Luther said as he commented on this passage in 1 Peter. He says, if he speak, I love Luther, he has to take heed that he speaks the word of God. Here both teachers and hearers are concerned that the former teach nothing in the church and the latter hear nothing aside from the word of God. For here the theme is not how to govern a country or a people, how to run a house or a court, how to build a home or plant a vineyard. The theme is how may man be delivered from sin, acquire God's grace, and be saved. How God is disposed towards us and the like. This cannot be learned from any jurist or philosopher, nor from the Pope with his canons. Luther was not a fan of the Pope. However, if it is to be made known to you, then you must learn it from the gospel of Christ. Therefore, whoever is called to speak in the church, to preach, teach, and exhort, should speak what Christ has spoken and commanded on subjects relating to our personal salvation. Preach. See, the Bible is not a book about how to have a healthy marriage, how to raise self-aware and well-adjusted children, a science textbook, a manual on how to grow a business or govern a country, legislate national conduct, or even a psychological self-help book. While the Bible, listen church, it does speak to Christian marriage. It does speak to parenting. It does speak to business ethics. And it does speak to the internal workings of the soul. It speaks to all of those things. It is first and foremost the story of God's activity in human history to redeem a people for himself, for his own glory, through the sending of his son to be our substitute and the pouring out of his spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment and draw people unto Christ to the glory of the Father. That's the big story of the Bible. All these other things, they flow out of that story. Next, Peter says, not only must we say what God has said, but we must serve with God's strength. See, those with serving gifts should not exercise them out of their own strength. Listen, that's a sure road to burnout. Don't ask me how I know. One commentator, Peter Davids, said this about the word supplies in the text. He says, originally it meant to pay the expense for training a chorus for a Greek theater or to defray the expense for something. Here the Christian sees a service that God wants done. 
own, one can try to do it out of one's own zeal and strength, a recipe for ultimate ineffectiveness and burnout, or one can depend upon that strength which God provides. God has ordered the job done. He will pay the expenses, be they material, physical, or emotional. He backs up the act of the Christian who's being a good steward of his gifts and dependence upon him. Listen, if I can make that plain this morning, I would say it this way. When God writes the purchase order, he doesn't expect you to cut the check out of your own resources. When he writes the purchase order, he delivers the funds. Serve with the strength that God supplies in dependence upon him in prayer, pressing into him, into his word. Sounds familiar like we talked about that two weeks ago. So we serve with the strength God supplies and say what God has said. As we choose service over self. Now, here's what I want to do as we close this morning. I want to put two, what I consider to be like rocket engines <laughs> under your feet to lift you. Because listen, the gravity pull of self in the human heart is strong. Just like the gravity of earth. And so when engineers determined they were going to send a space shuttle into outer space, you know what they had to do? They had to conceive of rockets strong enough to break the hold of Earth's gravity. And I tell you, the gravity of the self is strong. And so I want to give you two rockets, one on each side, just like the space shuttle, that'll help break the pull of self. And the first one is this. If you're going to choose service over, over self, you must daily build the habit of anticipating Jesus' return. I want you to notice in the text we read this morning, in verse 7, Peter says the call to serve is built on the conviction of the second coming. At the beginning of verse 7, he says the end of all things is at hand. In other words, this age is coming to an end. Jesus is coming back. And so everything Peter says in this immediate context is built upon that conviction. The end of all things at hand. So Peter says, pray and love and show hospitality to one another because you're living on the threshold between this age and the age to come. And it's at hand. The command in verse 10 to speak and to serve is also connected back to that conviction in verse 7. Use the gifts you've received for the good of others and the glory of God because you're living on that threshold anticipating Jesus' return. Now, it begs the question, how is the call then to speak and to serve, to choose service over self built on the conviction of the second coming? Let me tell you how it's not built on the conviction of the second coming before I tell you how it is. First of all, it is not built on the conviction of the second coming because the end of all things for a Christian ought not produce the fear of not measuring up and being rejected. 
For the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. The last song that we said before Charles led us in prayer and I stood to preach, we sang about the all-sufficient merit of Jesus Christ that now belongs to those who have taken hold of him by faith. They've received his gift of grace. And so it's not that we're going, you know what? If I serve Jesus enough, when he returns, he will receive me and accept me. That is not how the command to serve and to speak is built upon the conviction of the second coming. You know what that is? That is legalistic religion. That says if you do enough and you take enough steps, then eventually God will receive you, Jesus will save you. That's not how it works at all. In fact, it works quite opposite from that, that Jesus has come to save and redeem and rescue those who want nothing to do with serving Him. And He brings them to God and then begins to transform their lives so they become people who are passionate about serving God and serving others with the gifts that God bestows by His Holy Spirit. So we're not saying, Jesus is coming back, you better work hard so He'll receive you. That is not what the text is saying. So what is it saying? Listen, the end of all things doesn't produce a fear of not measuring up and being rejected. But I would say it does produce a healthy fear of meeting the one who has pledged never to reject you in his son and living a life of ingratitude with what he's given you. I don't want to meet Jesus, the one who has rescued and redeemed my soul, who has deposited all the funds into my account to make sure it would be paid in full. I don't want to meet him. I don't want to meet him and having taken, as Jesus tells in the parable, taken what he's given me, buried it in the sand and not lived a life filled with gratitude for what he's done, overflowing in service to God and others. Rather, Earlier in the book of Peter, 1 Peter, Peter says, listen, you have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and a guaranteed inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, being kept in heaven for you, being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And if we're assured of that inheritance because of Christ because we're assured that we're going to be totally accepted, completely received, and fully loved, then we tremble at the thought of living an ungrateful life. That's how the gospel works, church. So you anticipate Jesus' return every day, and you wake up every morning and say, his return is one day closer. And I want to meet him, because he's received me. And I want to meet him with joy and gratitude, as a servant, a steward of his gifting. But second, here's the second rocket. Not only do you anticipate his return, but you anticipate your resurrection. 
There's another beautiful text that says something very similar in 1 Corinthians 15. As I went from church to church this last fall, I heard a sermon from this text at one of the churches that I visited. And it fired me up. (laughs) I got real excited. I was ready to stand up and shout. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now in the context of this passage, Paul's writing about the resurrection of the body earlier in 1 Corinthians 15. And he tells the church at Corinth, there's a day that's coming when the trumpet will sound The dead will rise, the perishable will put on the imperishable, the mortal will put on immortality, and death, listen, it will be swallowed up in victory. Swallowed up in victory. And then he says the word, therefore. I'm not the first pithy preacher to say, when you see a therefore, you got to ask what it's there for. There, everything that he says in verse 58 is built on the certainty of our resurrection, the certainty of death being swallowed up in victory, the certainty of our mortal bodies being clothed with immortality and the perishable. Anybody feel perishable this morning? Yeah. With, we'll be clothed with imperishable, imperishability with the imperishable. And because that's true, he says, therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Because all that's true. And that word steadfast, it literally, oh man, it literally means to sit down. Think about this. He says, sit down. Sit, be, be rooted. Be stable in your work. Be be steadfast, immovable. It literally means, right, to have a firm foundation under your feet and not be moved from place to place. So you sit down somewhere, you set some roots, and then he says, abounding in the work of the Lord. That word literally means to exceed, listen, to exceed a fixed measure. You know what that means? He says this, sit down, plant some roots, and then overdo it. Overdo it in the work of the Lord. Abound in the work of the Lord. Give yourself wholeheartedly to the work of the Lord, choosing service over self. Why? Because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because one day, death will be swallowed up. One day, your mortality will become immortality. And one day, this perishable body will be clothed with the imperishable. So sit down, plant some roots, and overdo it. Because it's not in vain. Not in vain. 
My prayer is that those twin engines would give us the fuel and propulsion that we need to break the gravity pull of self and choose service over self as a daily habit. Because every time we do, church, it shapes us in small but eventually noticeable ways. Let's pray together. Father, as we continue to consider habits in our lives, things that we do daily, things that we do weekly, things that we do monthly, routines that we develop, these holy habits or spiritual disciplines, as we think on these things and consider them, May they not just be messages that minister to us in the moment, but may they be messages that we carry into a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday as we read the Bible, as we engage in worship, and as we serve others. May you conform us as a people, as individuals, into those who would reflect the image of Jesus. Help us to see that choosing self over service is always going to be a reflection of the first Adam. But choosing service over self always conforms us into the image of the last Adam who came to give his life as a ransom for many. If even he can serve, so can we. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Church, I invite you to stand this morning as we sing in response to what God has said to us through his word. Lift your voices, rejoicing in his salvation, this one that we look forward to meeting one day upon his return. Let's sing together. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and sin, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.